Welcome to another episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. I'm Brad Gordon, a practicing emergency physician and informatics leader at Regions Hospital. Today, I've roped in another of my colleagues at Regions to sit down and chat, Sam Stelflug. Sam is currently a core faculty member and a night hawk at Regions Hospital and the program director for our toxicology fellowship. We tried out the coffee shop for Sam's tips for success, and I think it worked out well. He has a diverse history that informs his style and manner of practice, and I really had fun exploring what he had to say. Now, my previous guest, Rob Lefevre, said it best. No one likes to talk about Sam more than Sam, so we better get right into it. Sam, welcome to Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. Uh, Before you get started... I was given feedback that I didn't even tell people my name. I'm Brad Gordon. I'm here with Sam Stolflug. And I wanted to um, first, as I've mentioned in other podcasts, confirm that I've pronounced your name properly. It's a, it's a U with an umlaut. Ooh. Okay. An um. Stelflug. Flug. Silent P. My grandpa always said silent P as in swimming. And then it's a U with the, the umlaut. Stelflug. Flug. Well, I appreciate you that correcting me on that because uh, it's important to me that you feel welcome here. And starting with your name is, uh, well, that's just a key component of that. And I do. Thank you for welcoming yeah. me. Now, how long have you been in your emergency medicine career post-residency? So I graduated from med school in 05 and residency in 08. So 10 years this June. So uh, congratulations on decade of post-residency practice and... Uh, Thank you for joining me here to talk about some of the things you've learned, maybe even um, taught others over the last few years. Let's do it. Well, I think uh, first question is, uh, do you enjoy work? Do you uh, enjoy a shift? Do you enjoy the non-shift work? I do. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thankful for work, and I'm, I'm uh, in general enjoying, enjoying work um, every Every year, my wife and I assess if we're in the right place in terms of geography and if I'm in the right place in terms of job. And every year for the last 10 years, that assessment has landed, landed beyond that I'm in the right place because I enjoy it. So I'm already going to go off script. So I want to hear about the assessment day. Like, do you have a day on the calendar? Is it the first of the year? Is no, there a, a formal it's, assessment? It's not on the calendar, okay. but ear- early in the year. Um, and, okay. um, and by... By year, I mean like a lot of us do the academic year. We typically do it in summer, right? Um, just because that's when we turn over and yeah. and that's when the hiring process would happen in academic jobs. But mm-hmm. um, but so sometime July or August, around the time we're having interviews for uh, for residency and fellowship start, we'll we'll do an assessment, figure out do we want to live here? Yes or no? Am I in the right job? Yes or no? Could we be happier elsewhere? Yes or no? And a lot of times, those are not yes or no questions. Right. Um, but uh, but oftentimes... Are they a Likert scale? Do you have a, <laughs> a survey monkey? Yeah, I, show, I, I get out a piece of paper with uh, multiple different happy and sad faces and okay. show her and make her point. Oh, you do a pretty faces. Typ- I mean, p- pretty typical Oh, so stuff. you just assess her. You just hold the faces chart up like a kid and, whoa, whoa, we got to make a change. <laughs> <laughs> Your pain scale looks like a nine. <laughs> exactly. You look moderately happy. Let's let's still do this. Well, I like that because if we get nothing else out of this, I think just having the moment of reflection once a year with a spouse is important. I've heard of another guy who does, um, maybe it was through a podcast, who does an annual, uh, he actually 
does a performance eval of his own job as a husband with his wife and he tries to actually hit metrics on uh, a composite metric of all these different dimensions that that seems very complicated it seems like something i'm sure you're doing you just held back and you don't (laughs) want to tell me about that Um, but we, before we get beyond that, I think, uh, it sounds like, uh, you are enjoying where you are in your career right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you leave your shifts feeling pretty fulfilled? In general? Yeah. Um, I, I generally am leaving pretty mentally fulfilled, sometimes physically drained. Yeah. Um, I, I all, all of my emergency medicine shifts right now are overnight. I was going to so, ask you to describe your current. Yeah. And so, um, that part of it, um, just because of the the physical aspect of it, sleep and sleep eating, et cetera, and, and balancing that, that uh, can impact a great deal how I feel by the end of a shift, whether I'm feeling f- like f- sort of physically ready or physically drained and yeah. and, and that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of that has almost nothing to do with what happens actually during my time at work and yeah. more um, how I'm prepped and mm. what's happening at home okay. for that. Um, that part was significantly either prior to, uh, easier prior to children. Um, it's just a different, a different sort of deal planning for planning for uh, shift prep and that sort of thing. Yeah. I, um, uh, for everybody listening, we're sitting in a coffee shop in the early morning and I was a little worried I was going to make it because my kid got up early and uh. threw everything off. It somehow happened. We came together as a team at my house and, um, we just have one and, Yet that's a pretty rough disruption to the schedule and predictability. He didn't know that you had this planned and had, oh, to, he had knew. to stick to it. He was daddy podcast, daddy podcast. Um, and then I said, yes, daddy has... No, he did not say any <laughs> of this stuff. But I did have a the poop goes in the potty discussion this morning uh, for the 20th time in the last That is day. a very valuable discussion to be had. It is. Uh, hopefully he does tell his teachers, probably right at about this moment. <laughs> But I digress uh, <laughs> to the potty talk. Um, it's, I think I have this on iTunes rated at the right explicit level that I can have potty talk discussions, um, but I'm not okay. entirely sure. Just noted. For, no, that's for that's the useful future part for of me because that's, I mean, that's what I wanted to focus on later, yeah. especially. So, Well, I thought, you know, you excel in teaching that to residents, <laughs> I think, as well. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't excel in teaching that even to a, a toddler and a baby, so... <laughs> Okay. Well, uh, so amongst uh, your other roles, you work uh, night shifts, you mentioned. Um, I think uh, we were talking about even before you showed up in residency, there was some discussion about your history as a um, black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You're also into toxicology. And by into, I mean, you're board certified in toxicology. Mm -hmm. Um, You are a program director for our fellowship. And so you got a lot of things going on and you're the program director for raising kids. Sounds like, right. Yeah. Well, so, I, no, probably not. Probably not the program no, director. No, you're just core faculty. I'm AP, APD. APD. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so there's a lot of things to mine in our interview here. And I, um, I'm just had to, glad to have you. <laughs> I'm just glad to have you on. <laughs> I pick, I'm just getting for Klimt here talking about it. I, I get it. This yeah. is going to be an emotional roller coaster. It's going to be. Let me get my tissue out. Um, so, what have you brought? Like, what are the things that you um, find in your current job that um, that help you build up 
like that morning, or I shouldn't say morning, before your shift, mm-hmm. um, the things that, that build up your energy levels so that you feel like it's going to have a good shift. Do you have a routine? Do you have any particular strategy? Yeah. So for me um, now, it, it's changed significantly again in the last, I mean, we're sort of joking about the kid thing, but now um, that uh, I I have a, a small commute leading into my shift and that that commute is usually my first time in in several hours um since like afternoon nap time for my kids not me it's usually the first time that i have had time to like sit and think alone for for um for any length of time um we have a little bit of a late bedtime for my daughter and so she's actually i'm usually doing like post-dinner play and then bath time with her and then getting her to bed like reading stories and stuff um, not that long before I'm actually just doing a couple things to get ready to leave for the shift. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, as I'm sort of as honestly, as I'm exiting the house, it's, um, I, I am realizing a little bit of, oh, oh my God, I'm going to a shift and I haven't slept since 6am because I've been up working and then doing kid stuff all day. Um, but also it's my, oftentimes my first, um, taste of like, oh, so the next half hour is totally mine. I can, I can do what I want with right. it in terms of even just like thought space. And so sometimes, um, sometimes that prep is like music on the way to the shift. And sometimes yeah. it's, it's podcast and almost always, um, I'm listening to something that is not medically related because I just want to have, I want to have fun, but I also want to kind of keep my mind going, like thinking about stuff. Um, uh, but, um, but I, I just, it's, it's like for me and that rhythm of, I get out of the house, listen to something that I want drive by the time I'm pulling into St. Paul, pulling into regions. Um, then at that time I'm like, okay, like 10 minutes to, to the shift starting or whatever. And it's sort of, it's that natural gear up without even actively thinking about it because it's now a process that I've done so many times. Um, and so however tired I am leaving the house or whatever, by the time I get to, to work, I'm always ready to go. Cause it's the, it's just the rhythm of, of, um, the rhythm of getting there. Um, it, it feels so natural now. Yeah. Um, and, and it feels so, so necessary and right to be like up by that time. Yeah. And are there any, uh, you've been, I would say had a, pretty sustainable run as a night hawk now Mm -hmm. and uh are there any do's or don'ts you'd say in that role for people who might be considering that job or have already been doing it but maybe struggling yeah if uh, so i've been doing i've been doing exclusively nights since um essentially second year of fellowship um with the exception of the um of the valley work um, that I did for a number of years where sometimes it was days, sometimes it was nights and sometimes it was 24s, but all my regions work since 2009 has been, has been uh, night hot work. And I mean, first of all, if, if you, um, if you sort of dislike nights at any point early in your career or doing a residency, probably don't be a night hawk. That would be, <laughs> okay. that would be stupid. That's the first litmus um, test. If you, uh, if you have a t- hard, if you know you have a hard time with day sleep, and you've tried multiple things in terms of like environmental protection and <laughs> yeah. sort of body modification or whatever, then if you have a hard time with that, then don't be a night hawk. And then the other, the other scenario is, um, 
is to think about how much sleep you need afterward to sort of reset back to days when you're going to do that. Um, in my mind, that's why most groups pay a slight premium for Nighthawks is because they're paying for that adjustment period for you to get back to a regular a regular schedule, right. essentially. Um, and if you uh, if you need that, and you have a young group that doesn't want to pay a premium for nights, then you, maybe you're you're not getting value for what you're willing to offer, and right. in which case you shouldn't do it. Um, on the flip side, if you if you have a life set up, especially like young kids, or if you have evening stuff on your own that you like to do. Um, if you want to totally protect your evening time, so you never have to go to work in the in the evening, like right. dinner through um, whatever kid bedtime, yeah, um, that is one of the great benefits. I get to put my daughter to bed every night, yeah, um, which which is really really nice, right? Um, and uh, if I can keep it up, uh, especially in in talking to a couple of the colleagues that have done it, uh, done it with older kids, being able to go to every game or event or whatever yeah. it is. Um, as they get older, I look forward to that. I don't know if I'll still be in that in that role at that time, but um, and what does your turnaround day look like when you try to reset today's? Yeah, so tur- turnaround day now is um, I, I will come home and either go right to sleep, or um, if if I'm home a little bit late, um, I'll do uh, kid kid breakfast time um, and then go right to sleep, depending on. Uh, on if I if I basically if I can get into bed before they get up, which isn't always possible, that's my preference. Um, and then I will typically sleep for like three or four hours on the turnaround day, and then get up and do something that doesn't require full brain function, but also requires most most of uh, body function yeah. just to get keep me going um, through the day. Um, in uh, prior to working only at regions, um, I would actually try to stack. Uh, I would try to stack regions, 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 and then one of the valley shifts. <clears throat> because if I was able to to clear out the waiting room, clear out the mm-hmm. the ED, and get to sleep at like three or four in the morning, um, I don't know if that's still possible at those places. Yeah. But um, if I was able to get to sleep at three or four in the morning and sleep through sign out until nine or ten, now I've won the day. Yeah, I've reset absolutely. the day, and so I used to try to stack a Western Wisconsin shift on top of like three three region shifts. And the, um, yeah, that sounds pretty typical from a, just a, it sounds like really you just got to get yourself up if you expect yourself to, mm-hmm. and that period of time for me afterward, like that one in the afternoon is pretty groggy. That's probably the roughest, the nadir of all of it for me is just that I got to be up. I can't go to sleep. It might be watching TV, but that's still not ideal. It's usually trying to be out walking or a workout of some kind. Yeah, agreed. Do you have any uh, particular like nutrition or anything like that? I've heard or vitamins or uh, melatonin or things in that category. You want you want to know if I take melatonin or Ambien? That's what that's what this question is about. Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm just I'm. It's a gateway question (laughs) into more of an. And then how much Ambien are you using? See, I just I set it up in a way that just presumes that you are taking it. Um. So I uh, I don't know um, for, I've I've actually tried so I've I've um, I've tried Ambien um, once or twice actually didn't like it yeah. I didn't I, I just didn't feel like it was good for me um, and I don't um, I don't really like uh, Benadryl um, as a as a sleep aid I think I'm a slow 
Yeah. Uh, I think I'm a slow CYP450 metabolizer or something. I yeah. feel groggy in the morning. I do want my podcast to get into the pharmacogenomics aspect I, of shift work. So <laughs> I, thank you for bringing that in. I I would hope so. Yeah. Um, I, and I've tried, I've tried melatonin. It maybe works. I, I sometimes will take melatonin for the same reason people take a multivitamin. Like I think the upside is potential and the downside is very limited. Right. Um, but, uh, honestly for me, it's just, a um, it's sort of a ca- like a caffeine peak at some point sort of mid shift. Yeah. And then ultimately tapering down on that. And now at this point, I don't need a, I don't need a sleep aid. Right. Um, as opposed to just sort of stopping drinking rockstar at some point in the shift um that's appropriate for the for the time that i want to go to sleep yeah yeah that sounds um i think that's been my experience i really i tried benadryl i think um i've I've used melatonin the same way i don't really feel like it has much effect it's mostly i don't usually have a trouble sleeping the biggest thing was making blackout curtains like that once i had some something that just made the room really dark yeah i realized that changed what was sometimes like four to six hours of good sleep to almost eight hours a lot of the time and that okay. made a big difference for me but others don't need that or just a sleep mask or something but yeah that makes it that makes a big difference the having a blacked out room yeah. for me anyway for me too um, so I think the, uh, I wanted to talk a bit about during a shift because in this role as a Nighthawk, you're doing a lot of supervision. Um, but you didn't start that way. Um, as you mentioned in the Valley, um, what kinds of things did you have to do to kind of get yourself to where you felt like I, I've got this, I can handle the volume of a busy community ER or the surges that might come even in a smaller one when I'm the only person there and eight people show up with lax or something like that. Did you learn anything that you, from the bar fight yeah. dicks or something? Yeah. The, the eight in the waiting room and right. one doc, one nurse and a kid shows up with a lip, lip lack. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, um, I, first of all, I think I was, I felt, I feel like I was trained well in terms of, in terms of handling volume and, and, um, like I had, I, I feel like I had felt the heat prior to being done. Um, that being said, the, the, um, the heat that you feel when you're, <clears throat> when you are that doc in a box, uh, with just you and a nurse overnight in a full waiting room, um, at a small shop, that's different. I mean, it's just a different way of, uh, a different way of approaching things. And, um, and that was really good for me, especially I don't, I don't do that anymore. I mean, I, I, I occasionally will whatever filling in for someone who's gone or sick or something, but functionally I don't, I don't do that work anymore, but I still think about it frequently in terms of the things that I learned from, from that. Right. Um, and, uh, so notably I, I, I knew that there were times that I was pushed to the limit, um, however many patients or a, like certain amount of high maintenance uh things going on pushed me where i felt like i was sort of stuck in the mud um and i thought i mean i i sought out help from others and what do you do in this scenario what do you do and and um from folks like you uh, to help with documentation which is obviously a huge a huge deal um in that scenario are you going to get behind or are you going to keep up sort of that main right. main question um but then there's a couple things i did I did in terms of sort of self um, analysis, um, sort of auditing, if you will. And it was mainly because there's a, a lot of aspects of life. Um, it's apparent what you suck at 
mm-hmm. and there's certain um, there's uh, certain things we do where it's difficult to tell. It's difficult to tell what you're bad at, and so I did something um, that I did, and it was a product of a slow uh, night at Hudson, one of those trickle nights where I had a patient come in, kind of. I don't know. It was like once every 45 minutes, give or take. (laughs) So I was up, but not super busy. I had time to do stuff. And I started poking around in, um, in, uh, the, our electronic health record. Um, and, uh, and I, I had a patient that was frustrating from an efficiency standpoint. It was, it was a a migraine headache patient, just a standard, uh, like standard stuff. Uh Uh-huh. And I started looking at a couple things in the, in Epic, thinking like, why why was that person here for four and a half hours or whatever it was? Like that's that seems terrible, both for them and for me and for the nursing staff. Like it's just right. bad all around. So I started looking, at, and about an hour later, and it doesn't take me this long to do it anymore. But about an hour later, I had a piece of paper uh, written out with essentially a full self audit. So what time did the patient arrive? Um, like going into the patient events tracking in the, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the record, what time did they arrive? And then all the stuff that's available in that, what time did they arrive? What time did they go to whatever, whatever, maybe they got a head CT or something and came back. Um, and then I went into the MAR, looked at when I ordered each round of meds and when they were administered. Yeah. And I started through, um, through a couple different parts of the record, I was able to map out what uh, every literally everything that happened to that patient, and I I noticed a couple things that were big gaps on that patient. One was um, there was a gap between when I ordered something, whatever it was, Compazine and Benadryl or something, and then when the nurse actually administered it. There was a gap each time. Yeah, and then the other gap was um, was when something came back, like a, the CT scan or whatever. And the, whatever the next thing I was going to do, like I, there was a 15 minute gap between when that came back and then when I did my next thing. Yeah. And so I was like, well, is that real? And so I, I subsequently did that audit on uh, a number of patients over a few months. Uh-huh. And I realized that those two for me were my, were my fill points. That's what I sucked at. I, I wasn't putting the order in Epic and communicating immediately with the nurse. I see. And that, that was generating a 15 or 20 minute gap sometimes between when I ordered something and when it was done. So all I had to do was say like, hey, so-and-so, I just put in blank, put in please do that. Yeah. And that gap went away. Um, same thing with the uh, the lab test or CT scan or whatever it was being resulted. That gap went away. It's like the Hawthorne effect of um, that's, that's right. Like Hawthorne is where yeah, with that, that which you observe improves. Even yeah. without making an active intervention, you just start intervening because I'm, I'm now aware of my mm-hmm. gaps. And so I closed those. Yeah. Um, and that was incredibly helpful because now any of those patients that your kidney stone, back pain, migraine, headache, um, multiple imaging patient, whatever it is, um, you can, if I can limit those gaps, now I can make everything more efficient about, um, about, every one of those patient encounters and it might take a four and a half hour visit to three hours and if i do that on every four and a half hour visit all of a sudden i mean that pushing that's like pushing through a an efficiency barrier for me Um, but you don't i i wouldn't have done that unless i was both willing to and able to um honestly just look at what i'm bad what, what i was bad at yeah and um so you kind of were able to use that system to just break down and just try to notice that there are these gaps and now um are you do you get a sense of whether 
what was I going to try to ask? It sort of comes down to, it's always this value proposition because I think when you place that new order, it's just so easy to go walk away and either see a new patient or maybe document or um, talk to somebody instead of when that nurse isn't immediately available and you can't find him, he's in a different room. How much effort do you put into trying to like track that person down? Is it a, I really try to do it every time or do you feel like uh, you put it more on the, do it when it's easy? Yeah, it's. I mean, sometimes it's not possible, but I try right. to do it every time. Um, and I'll even try to follow up when residents put stuff in if I don't know if that right. communication has happened. And again, m- maybe sometimes you can't do it. You're you're in so many places at once or whatever. But um, but it's like the the mantra of the slow is steady and steady is fast. Like if you can take the, what I mean, what's it going to take? Twenty seconds, thirty seconds to try to track that person down and right. tell them however it is physically or through the the vocera system or something you track them down somehow right and that 30 seconds of investment might take five minutes off of the next step of of care for the patient um, yeah, yeah and worst case scenario is you try to track them down spend 30 seconds or a minute and you don't so you've lost a minute but if you do that in every order and you save a few minutes on every order you do then losing that a few times is totally worth it now you mentioned sort of this um, order to action by the nurse. And then you mentioned the, um, the result to your action kind of time. And I want to come, come back to that, but I wanted to ask, are there any other sort of gaps besides those two that you came up with or that well, you the, remember? I mean, in terms of efficiency in general, yeah. you mean, uh, I mean, those for me, those were the biggest per, sort of personal, yeah. um, personal things to get over. I think in general, um, and this this is maybe um, the, maybe the most important thing um, that I try to carry forward with residents and students. Um, I think the biggest block to efficiency is just um, is decision making efficiency. Is well, sort that's of why the, I wanted to talk about the result thing. Yeah. Okay, right. Okay, because you were just saying like, okay, this result might be coming back. So tell me how that how you've looked at that efficiency of decision making. Yeah. So in, for, for me personally, seeing, seeing a patient primarily, um, um, which is significantly less. Which you don't less, do anymore. Right. It's significantly less now. I do it a fair amount in like July and August for obvious reasons right. and less as the year, as the year goes along. Um, but that the key and the sort of one sentence summary of, of my take on, um, tests resulting and decision-making efficiency, um, in that context is that if a test results and I don't know what I'm going to do with that test result immediately, and in fact, if I don't know what I was going to do with the test result, whether abnormal or normal, prior to it being resulted, if I don't know that answer at that time, then I'm not responsible enough to have ordered that test in the first place. Yeah, so you kind of almost call this like, you're not, you you shouldn't be allowed to order the test unless you've yeah, if you're if you're doing if you have a test resulted and then there's you're aware of it and you're thinking about it and there's still a time gap between you and doing the next thing that you're going to do, mm-hmm. what what are you doing? What have you been doing the 40 minutes between yeah. when you ordered it and and when it's resulted? And the step beyond that is what were you doing in the thought process of ordering it in the first place if you didn't know if it was going to be yeah. impactful on your care? I think it's called hope, hope that the easy answer comes along and then you don't have to think about it. <laughs> right. It To me... The UA the, is positive. The, oh, this, sounds great. This topic, maybe... I th- it, To me, it's the most important. Okay. And 
the most potentially frustrating um, in in interactions with everyone, all the way from students up and uh, all the way up to staff colleagues, uh, staff colleagues, yeah, sign outs and things like that. Um, is is having tests either pending or done, and not have a plan for what you're going to do with those with those tests. Yeah, I think it's not. I think it's not only inefficient but inappropriate. Right. Um, so I'm sure one of those arms is always just do the right thing, right? Like you've always like, I don't know. I'll just do the right thing. Probably well, not. The <laughs> Although, I mean, I think it is true when you're like, okay, if it's a positive for PE that you don't think is going to be there, do the right thing. It makes sense. But. Yeah. And that's the hard, the, the hard part in terms of approaching this is the abnormal test result is almost easy to, right. to do something with. The, the normal test result is Absolutely. usually the difficult thing in terms of how that test is going to either impact or not. The only, the only time an abnormal test is, is um, difficult to deal with is when it's a test you shouldn't have ordered in the first place because as you're looking at the abnormal test result, you're realizing mm-hmm. that it doesn't impact your decision-making at all. You had a kid with a viral URI that you and you got a CBC and you have a white count of 14. Well, what the hell do I do with that? I don't know. Well, maybe you shouldn't have ordered it in the first place. Yeah, I think that's actually really um, artic- well articulated. Uh, maybe surprisingly for no, just kidding. Uh, the uh, um, I think that's exactly it. Is it really comes down to those cases in which you were just I you know the term that just oh just gets me is just to be safe when somebody says I'm just going to get that to be safe and and I realize that it's often off the cuff, but it articulates this hey usually i'm not practicing in a safe way i'm just getting what i need because i use my judgment and my physical exam skills and my history taking skills and that's usually just loosey-goosey it's not really all that safe but i'm going to in this case get the lab test and particularly tell it to the patient we'll get that just to be safe and i feel like that's often a trigger in my mind that that thought process about what to do with the abnormal result isn't there yeah. Because, A, you're kind of telling everybody, I usually don't need this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And two, you're probably reducing everybody's collective con- uh, confidence in what we're all trying to do, which is reassure patients about often the worried well, um, normal findings on exam or um, you're going to get better even though you're having pain and things like that. The, uh, the backside of that interaction, that l- like provider lab interaction is um is is sort of a funny thing because when you get that troponin or d dimer or like in in my consulting world uh uh tylenol level or lfts just to be safe um and then they come back abnormal and and the and the interaction is something like oh the, well the trope is whatever point oh eight or whatever is yeah. slightly abnormal in right. your in your world um, but I don't, I mean, I think it's just strain. I don't think it's this, they, they're now trying to talk themselves out of it cause they didn't really want it in the first place, but now they have to deal. And, and I, I, oh, my approach to that always is you were worried enough to order this test looking for this specific problem and now you've found it. So now you have to deal with it. Like right. this is now thought incongruent. Like right. why, why are you doing it? Don't, don't ask your buddy if he needs help moving, <laughs> Unless you're actually willing to help him move if he says yes. Like, don't don't order the D-dimer unless you're willing to right. order the chest CT or VQ. Yeah. I've, it's funny that you mentioned that moving analogy because it's also like, let me help me move. And then you have to trust that that person actually ends up um, 
uh, doing like they're going to carry your crap and you can't sit there and micromanage. Like don't carry it that way. Don't run into the wall. Like that's uh, like you have to basically commit to the ask before you, <laughs> right. Before you do it. So the, um, the, and, and do you see this developing? Do you feel like you've seen this develop in residents as you've watched them over the year, years of supervision with them in terms of if you have this conversation as a first year, would you say that a lot of, and I'm using residents because you just get to see the trajectory of them a little bit more, are more consistently implementing it by the time they're out? Or do you feel like or they're about to leave? You, or do you, do you mean feel like residents that have intervened on in this way? Yeah, let's use that group. So for sure, at least with me, um, and I, I, I think you and like I. Like when maybe, you mean at least with you, at least when they're super. When they're working with me, yeah, they're they like on guard. Yeah, they know I'm going to ask um, certain things, and and they know I am also. Um, they know I'm, I'm willing to follow it up and put like push them to make a certain decision. I can, I. We haven't studied it yet, and I actually want to yeah. this sort of this decision making intervention process. Um, and it would be a, it would be a fun thing to see if it actually made a difference because maybe I'm just blowing smoke and it doesn't make a difference at all. But um, it's again, it's just anecdotally, it seems yeah. like the most important thing. I can tell you what I do if if you want to intervene early. Yeah. Um, and it's it's the best with. Um, I'm counting on the students and residents not listening to this now. Okay. Um, right. Because it's, give away it's your... best if they're not prepped, but um, I do it with a student or intern, and it's best to do it with a, a small group of people. So, like a, sh- a shift where you have a student, an intern, and a third, oh, year, a right, third right. year or something like that. In part because the um, it makes it a more it makes it a more displayed, uncomfortable decision making <laughs> process, which really is the point. Um and. <laughs> So the get the best the, that way. The the here's the clinical scenario, and this is this is to highlight what I try to have them do every time they order a lab test from there on, and they know that I'll push them on this. So the scenario um, that I've used in the past, and there's multiple, but this is I think the best um, that I've tried anyway is you have something like a 50 year old guy with a, G, a GI bleed, a rectal bleed. Okay. Uh-huh. And uh, he's had it going on for months at home and just a little bit increased lately. That's why he's in tonight. He's, um, he's symptomatic at work. If he's lifting heavy things and doing really ex- like extensive work, he gets a little more short of breath than usual, but just doing regular stuff around the house, no symptoms other than having noticed the bleeding. Um, in front of you, he is just sitting there watching TV, hanging out, telling you the story of rectal bleeding, a little bit more short of breath at work, and his vital signs are completely normal and stable on multiple checks in triage and in the room. I'm, so I'm telling you that he's fine, yeah, but that he has increased rectal bleeding and is symptomatic at work. That's the, that's the story. That's the presentation. He doesn't doctor much, but gets like a yearly check, is on no medications, no ongoing problems, no known heart history. I'm taking all of the variables right. out. Um even though they'll oftentimes come back, what about this? What about this? Like, yeah. nope, normal, no other variables. Right, right, right. Here's the story. So, um, I asked, I'll ask the student or resident, what is the, what are they going to order? And inevitably, they're ordering us either a CBC or a hemoglobin because the guy's short of breath. They want to see if he's anemic as a cause for that. Totally reasonable, right? Okay. And so, that's that's the entry to the game. 
Like that's the, <laughs> that's the, the premise. So now I have, a, I have a piece of paper in front of them and I have, um, I have uh, written down on it a, a line. At the, one end of the line is a, is a little check mark and the number five. And on the other end of the line is a little check mark and the number 15. So I tell them that like this, here's your hemoglobin. What will you do if it comes back at five? And always, because this is the right thing, they say, well, I would order blood and I would talk them through. We're probably going to transfuse you. You're a little bit symptomatic at work. It's a really low number by any measure. We're going to transfuse you as long as you're okay with it, et cetera. You're going to come in the hospital. You're going to see GI, like the whole deal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I say, what are you going to do if it's 15? Um, he, the guy's saying he's, he's fine, a little short of breath at work. He's got a doc that he can follow up with in clinic, et cetera. And inevitably, the answer is we're going to send him home. He probably needs close follow-up with primary care or GI or whatever. It, the answer is always home and follow-up yeah. closely. And so the next question is between doing everything and doing nothing, what is your cutoff? And, and and that that pregnant pause is the is the game. Inevitably, um, inevitably, it's followed up with more clinical questions, more like, well, what like what about this? So he's short of breath at work at work, but not at home, and yeah. whatever. And I, and I'm like, you have all of the information you either will have and and or need. <laughs> um, what's your cutoff? You right. have to have one. And they're like, well, it's different for different people, and. And I'm like, you have a 50-year-old, and I'll reiterate the yeah. clinical scenario. This is the scenario. What is your cutoff? And so the, inevitably, they'll say seven or nine or something, right. whatever it is. So then the follow-up is, when they, when they say seven, the follow-up is, so at 6.9, you will transfuse and admit and get a GI consult. And at seven, you will send him home with close clinical follow-up. Just so I'm like, it comes back at 6.9, you're going to do this. Right. And it comes back at seven, you're going to do this. And that it in almost to a person makes them extremely uncomfortable, especially with like two other participants right. in the discussion that are really not participating. They're just, just watching, watching this the commitment ma- this, that has like, to be made. <laughs> m- mental melee happen. <laughs> um, and that, that process, that moment of the 6.9 versus seven, that's the moment that is, I think, the most important in terms of decision-making efficiency. And the, and the reason that clinical scenario is important and the reason that cutoff is important is because the, the amount of times in emergency medicine that we make decisions with partial information where there is a mostly right answer, but there is some arbitrary nature to it, like who cares if the cutoff is 7.4 or 6.9 or something like that? It doesn't matter because there's some education, some literature, and then some arbitrary decision-making based on your interpretation of the situation that's going into that. Yeah. And that arbitrary nature, but the fact that it has to boil down to a very particular cutoff because you're ordering a test that will give you up to one decimal point of stuff. Yeah. And at some point, you're going to have to send them home. And at some point, you're going to have to admit them. Recognizing it's arbitrary, creating a cutoff, and being willing to move forward, assuming the clinical picture hasn't changed, that is the key. Because you're going to do that five, ten times every single shift with these, like your sodium and your your 
D-dimer and your whatever. And the right. D-dimer is an interesting example because for the most part, it has dichotomized itself for us because they tell us <laughs> this is normal, this is abnormal based, again, in part on a cl- sort of clinical expertise in right. part on, on studies. Um, but being willing to do that, assign, arbitrarily decide something yeah. and then stick to it as though it is black and white fact and move forward. Yeah. And the, the, the step the, the, the step to take to make it even better is when you're ordering it, create that cutoff because you cannot communicate yeah. with the patient, communicate with the nurse. When the test comes back, everybody knows what's going to happen. If you're in a trauma or a code, yeah. that can all just happen without you yeah. intervening at that point because you, you made the decision and you did that important thing 40 minutes ago instead of now when it's hard because now you've got all this information swimming around in your head. Anyway... Uh, no, I think that was particularly well put in terms of getting all the way to the point of like, okay, now that you've built the skill, and I think it takes practice, right? I mean, to it has for me, and I don't think I'm reliably doing this. Um, I do it, I think I want to say more than half the time, but I think there are times when you get tired and you're just like, I'll send that off and I'm, I'm cognitively bankrupt for an hour, but... Um, this one is, I, I think though it's not a linear relationship. You, pr- you can practice and get better at it. But it, I think this is one of those things where you can't ride a bike, you can't ride a bike. Oh, now I can ride a bike. Okay. Like you, you just have to get over that, that discomfort of yeah. assigning something specific to an arbitrary decision. And once you get over that, now you can ride a bike. Right. And, and now, you can, now you can do it. And I do, so I'll do that with them. And then the yeah. folks that I know I've done that with, I'll reiterate it by like, I mean, we can talk about my on-shift <laughs> supervision, um, especially of senior residents, but I will oftentimes come back to them having not heard anything about the patient yet. And, but I've seen tests ordered. I know where they're headed and I'll, I'll come back and, and I'll say something like, what are you going to do with that creatinine of 1.4 and then walk away? And they know, having gone through it with me, that they, they should have had an answer for me immediately. And if they don't, they need to now. Yeah. And just knowing that, um, that I'm going to do that. And obviously, it's not, maybe that's not great communication on my part. It certainly maybe drives more discomfort than comfort in terms of like professional interpersonal stuff. Um, but that's like... Well, but I mean, I, I don't... I'm quite certain that when we talked about your bio, we didn't touch in that you have won a teaching award or more than one. Is that a true statement? Some some teaching awards. There you go. So I don't think you're making people unprofessionally uncomfortable. You're making them professionally uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least during your shift. Such a huge distinction. It is professional. I, professional I uncomfortable. That. Yeah, well, um, at least to my knowledge, so, I don't know of any other claims against you. So... <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's exactly what I'm getting at. Is I think actually people, at least it seems that residents, particularly as they advance, and this is why I was asking that sort of a progression during residency question, was how people develop the skill on your watch. And it mm. seems like what you're saying is you've seen a number of them just start to answer that question very quickly for you because they learn to ride a bike. Um, and others may continue to struggle. Is that yeah, a good yeah. way of putting it? And, and the, the most satisfying thing for me is a, is a senior resident, like late two or, or a third-year resident, preempt it 
um, where they're doing like a little bit of a I block, guess you walk up. like a block presentation, like, hey, Sam, I want you to see room nine because it's a moderate risk chest pain with a negative workup that's coming in. I want you to see four because it's an asthma that's going home. And then five, I'm doing this stuff. I ordered these lab tests. If this, then this. If this, then this. And then yeah. they walk away. Like they're not even interested in interaction and they know they've just given me the information that I need. And if I want to follow up with more, I can, but oftentimes I don't because they've now... Like they've now given me what I've asked, I've been asking for, for, for a couple of years. Yeah. And I think that, um, I mean, the fact that they can articulate it like that is, um, also impressive because they're able to, they're thinking in that way. And yeah. I wonder, um, yeah, I lost where I was going to go with that. Do you think, um, and, and I guess I can only think that that translates to their satisfaction and fulfillment because I think that's where, over the long run, people get a lot of angst about, should I send this guy home? And I, I could tell you, I did. It took me, because I did a fellowship and I spent a lot of non-clinical time after residency, I think it took me a while to build more confidence than I would, I guess I would imagine those who went right off into the clinical uh, abyss, I'll call it. But, um, you know, just seeing lots of patients at high volume, building that ability to just be comfortable with that dichotomy and not second guessing yourself i think ends up because i think a fair number of those scenarios end up in lost sleep that night almost mm -hmm. if i can be very direct about it as people go home they're thinking about it on the way home maybe i shouldn't have sent that guy home maybe i should have things i think by building that clarity particularly if you can have that conversation with the patient and the nurse you've built this team of people around the decision that becomes less um wishy-washy and less room for um, re trying to redecide it when it has no, the yeah. only outcome will be your fulfillment. <laughs> well, you'll be losing sleep. You'll be the, ruminating on the, it. So the, the um the issue about that is that um that angst. If you're gonna have that about this arbitrary decision, you're gonna have that no matter what. Because what this is what um some folks who go through this maybe recognize or maybe don't, but they're going to make that decision at some point. It's just a matter of if they're going to make it fast or slow. Right. Because ultimately, they're going to make the decision about sending that GI bleed home or not. They can do it now or in two hours. They're going to make the same decision because they're going to either arrive at it quickly and comfortably right. or slowly and uncomfortably. And whether they're going to have some angst about having, uh, having done the right thing or wrong thing, they will have the same amount of angst but have gotten that person home or or admitted two hours earlier, so they're they're really contributing to their own shift wellness and right. like the nurses' wellness around them. Yeah, having made the exact same decision for the patient. Yeah, the patient. I mean, other than making them sit in a, right. a patient room for two extra hours or whatever it is, um, the decision won't change. It's just they get more comfortable as time goes on, almost because they like reach a okay, this guy's been here too long. I got to do something sort of thing as opposed to not getting to that point and and forcing the decision instead right. of being forced. Yeah. So, boy, there's a lot of directions I want to go, but I want to ask a little bit around your thoughts now that you've been supervising high at high volume for a long time. Like what, for those supervising either a senior residents or a PA who's been out for a while, maybe into the younger... I guess, I'd, you know, I don't want to say younger necessarily, but just the less experienced person that's, you're just 
a lot of doing the basics of like, here's how to take a physical exam. Here's how to work with integrity, whatever. Yeah. What kinds of things, uh, or even in your documentation style as a, um, what kind of things do you feel like are the most important roles for you during a shift with supervision? If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, there, I mean, f- I guess it's a little different from a like clinical decision making aspect as opposed mm-hmm. to like a whatever where wellness is the word we're we're supposed to say wellness like five times per discussion. Oh uh, yeah, we've got a my check well, marks two more. Two is that two? At least two. Okay, check it off. Um, but uh, from a from a clinical standpoint, it's a it's um it's a slightly different thing depending on sort of length of training of the person I'm discussing yeah. with. Um, my, the most important, I, I think thing for like an early learner, like a med student or an early intern, um, is to start getting them or oriented into a, dis, like a decision-making mode and a disposition yeah. mode. Um, people, uh, it's funny, people uh, sort of rail on us. Uh, they think it's callous to think of emergency medicine as a disposition specialty as right. a, somehow a negative, like we're, we're just uh-huh. trying to move the meat or whatever, like right, they right, use right. these sort of, um, negative connotation phrases um but i always i I never understand that because if you if you get in a disposition mindset i mean you don't want the patient there longer than they need to be the nurse doesn't the tech doesn't the patient doesn't want to be there longer than they need to be no one wants to not be actively in a disposition mode either to surgery or admitted or home or whatever it is no one wants that yet we somehow rail against disposition as a as a thing um as though it's heartless or something, but right. in, in actuality, it's it's the it's sort of the most heartfelt thing you can do is to right. to put everyone in a position where they want to be and um to get the early learners in that mode. Um, I do what what I just uh, said. How I, the most satisfying way a third year can present to me where they have that set yeah. up plan. Um, I try to get the med student or early intern to do that by by uh, presenting the patient backwards. Okay, um, and it's the and for supervising, it does two things. It it um, helps me with their decision making process. Is it also lets me know where they're at, so I can make a quick assessment how much trust I can have in that patient interaction, and then and then subsequently moving forward after I've done that a number of times. But I literally have them present disposition, followed by diagnosis, followed by their medical decision making, and then we get to review a system's physical exam and history if we right. if we need to where oftentimes we don't um but that's a really difficult exercise for like a med student who has been doing the first two parts of a soap note in their mind right. and hasn't really put that much thought into assessment and plan um they know that before they we even talk then they have to gone have gone through that full process whether right or wrong and i always tell them it doesn't matter if you're right. It literally doesn't because that's what residency's for. You right. you have whatever it is for what, four thousand yeah. patients or something to get right. Yeah. Um. And if you're right every time, intern year or when you're a med student, then residency would be stupid. Right. Like uh, that's the whole point of learning. Like you're by definition going to be bad at that process and and at coming to the right answer. But going through the process in an active way. Yeah, is what will let me know real time how much trust I can have about the patient interaction, and then you get an active learning process instead of a passive learning process where you like fish for what I think and I give an answer, or whatever. I'm just not going to do that. I'm not yeah. going to give you answers 
until you've given me answers because now we can work on the thought process, how you got there and actually modify an active learning process instead of just this passive, yeah, passive thing. Um, I feel like, I, I don't know, how many patients do we, do we see in residency? It's like, if it's 10, if it's 10 per shift and 20 per month, yeah, it's two, 200 if it's... Tw- yeah, I mean, 25. I want to say it's like... It's got to be 4,000. I was going to say three and a half, four yeah. thousand. Yeah. So if you, I mean, if you get through intern year and you've been sort of presenting subject of ob- objective information and then sort of discussing and fishing for what right. the attending what do you wants, do today? and if the attending's providing that information yeah. back, that passive learning, you could get through like a thousand of your 4,000 patient encounters and having having never really gone through a completely active learning process. And to me, that's a waste. Yeah. So that's, that's well, and I think you can, like you said, you can start that pre-residency because people have learned the collection skills, but a lot of it is just, it's, that's probably the earlier you start, it feels like the, um, I think that during that active learning process, uh, you're, you're wiring synapses faster than you are if you're just as one of my colleagues, my residency, I think called it like if you're the glorified who's next board and you're just telling me what i could read in the chart in more detail but you're not creating a plan <laughs> right then you're not actually functioning in the role you need to be functioning in right and i i i, I like when you mentioned the disposition focus that's one of the things i learned and i've probably said it already on this podcast or something that's be released is this concept of you know you're iteratively answering three questions is there anything i have to do right now where is this person going and what do I have to do before they go there? Uh, wherever that is. Like if you're answering those questions back in a cycle, you're probably coming to the right answer or the right things you need to do to get that person to where they're going. And, um, and that really helps me focus on when things get a little overwhelming, like, okay, these, all these people don't need anything right now. And then I go and say, okay, now I can reset and say, well, five of them are being admitted is there anything i have to do before they get admitted if and to be really serious about okay then drop the beds if you're not if if it's not going to change what they're going to do right um and then if the patients are going home or you know there's always the patients that are in some limbo um then it comes down to well i need to get this test or i need to do this type of observation and another physical exam to, to help me declare where they're going that really what it comes down to a lot of the time. It sounds like you've got it down. You know, I think at least I have it in words, <laughs> but it's hard. I think that's where I try to get people to say, like, if you find yourself um, not planning, but ordering tests as a means of stalling, like what you really should just do is go take five to 10 minutes because it's faster. It's, um, it's probably safer <laughs> for the patient. And um, you're, it probably makes you recover more quickly than if you ordered a few tests and then went and found out that all these tests are coming back with the answers you didn't anticipate, didn't want. And now you just have many more data points to integrate that you never would have had, had you not just um, gone on with what you're originally going to do. Right. And focused on those few tests that actually made a change in that. Um, That's where I think I get a lot into just, during the shift if something sets you off your balance to get back on it as quickly as possible um i so we touched on i i, I want i can't i can't leave the jujitsu part 
um, without coming back to doing some canned weird question like, Sam, what from your jujitsu work have you translated into emergency medicine that you found you can recommend to anyone else who's in the practice? Should we all be getting jujitsu training so that we can be excellent emergency physicians? No. <laughs> Tell me more. No, you should you should all be doing jujitsu so that you can take people down and choke them. Oh, I see. Oh, there's a more directed goal than as a product of emergency right. medicine training. Yeah, we don't have to make this I, we don't have to make this analogous. We could just say, here's what it is. Oh, I thought you were thinking about this was going to be part of the core curriculum for like a second year, <laughs> like when you're on your jiu oh, rotation. That would be, that would be great. Um, <laughs> actually, yeah, no, for many reasons, I don't think it would be great. It would be probably bad. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, yeah, I, it's funny. I, I, I started that, I started down that road for different reasons. Um, just because I liked the the fighting of it, and then ultimately kind of got into the sport of it, like uh-huh. competing and whatever. Um, but now, I mean, maybe the last five or even ten years, um, the I go there partly because of the workout, because it's like hard to squeeze in a really good workout in life in general. Yeah, um, with balancing work and home. But um, but the tr- the truth of the of that environment, the truth of the mat, it's a very different environment. Um, the I can imagine the people in the place and whatever, but um, the the truth of it is what I think is most satisfying now. Um, and I say that in in comparison to the academic and corporate structure that we that we live in, where I like I view there to be a lot of um, sort of sugarcoating and glad handing that is unnecessary um, because I think that people could be more equipped to deal with their own failures. We just don't treat it that way. Well, to your credit, you almost never bring it up during a meeting or... I'm joking, Wait, absolutely. Which, which part? <laughs> the fact that we should stop sugarcoating and just you rinse say, the say sugar what it right is. off many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but ahead. but in I mean in in that environment. So this I mean whatever I don't need to explain it in in depth what happens there. But you're I mean you're you're fighting guys or grappling guys or whatever, um, men and women, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and the truth of it is, I mean in in that moment, if you're not appropriately defending yourself or whatever, and you get choked or you catch someone in an arm bar and they have to submit and end them like end the match or whatever there is no escaping the fact that that happened yeah like we grappled you choked me i tapped you respected the tap and in in a, in a sense we're agreeing that you could have killed me if you wanted to like yeah. that's where we're at and now we slap hands and go again yeah and there's no like there is there's no escaping any part of that i can't make excuses i can't it's just that's what happened and we move on and mm-hmm. there's an error clearly that I made or something good you did that I couldn't counter that needs to be addressed. Yeah. That's it. All right. It's as simple as that. And in, 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 um, I try to bring that to a certain extent to, uh, to our, our meetings and that sort of thing, because I feel like, um, the, the most beneficial thing you sort of joked about, like, should we do that as core curriculum or whatever? <laughs> but the I don't and I don't think we should, but um, participating in that sort of thing, um, you fail thousands of times. You, that's just if you stay in it long enough, you will tap. 
meaning like make someone stop doing right. whatever they're doing to you. You'll tap thousands of times, admitting immediate failure that if if the tap wasn't respected would have had dire physical consequences. And that that sort of immediate truth is so beneficial because you deal with like, okay, I suck. I'm terrible at this. Yeah. What do I need to do to get better? And now I still suck, but I'm a little better. And I still suck, but I'm a little better. And ultimately you get good at certain things and right. then you suck at other things and you try to exploit those weaknesses and you get very comfortable with failure. I think this is an aside and maybe a whole different discussion. <laughs> this whole thing but, is an aside. I'm but, um, but getting back to like the academic environment and yeah. emergency medicine in general, as it relates to learning and patient interactions and consultant interactions, yeah. that we don't deal well and in in we i mean the medical community in general we don't deal with failure as adults well because i i think that um that people have had a lot of success to get to that point and right. not a lot of like obvious failures pointed out in such a such a clear way yeah and to deal with that like internalize like i'm i'm bad at that thing or or i did bad at that thing and i need yeah. to improve it's hard like the ego takes that hit it's difficult to to assess and move forward and i think if there were more of that sort of truth in failure and being okay with it and using it as an opportunity for improvement right. things would get way better and for me and this is the aside I think that's actually the most important aspect of wellness, staff and resident wellness, is recognize you're going to fail. Yeah. And you're going to do things bad. You're going to have bad shifts, bad interactions, order the wrong things or yeah. whatever. Being able to accept it, not try to like skirt the issue or say you didn't or talk your way out right. of it. Just say, I messed that up. And here's how I can avoid that in the future, whether right. it's a personal error or systems error or whatever, and then move forward and get better from it as opposed to like trying to talk your way around it or whatever it happens to be. That if, if we could make an environment of acceptable failure and using it to move forward in a right. positive way, I think that in and of itself, because now you've got a scenario where you can mess up right. and it's okay and we can all learn from it. And now going to work, you don't have to worry about messing up. You don't have to worry about making a mistake. Yeah. You just have to worry about what you're going to do after it. Yeah, I think that's the key. I, I really, you know, like I mentioned, it took me probably what I perceive as longer than others, at least in my cohort that I observed, to build a confidence level. And I think a lot of that was around this, hey, I'm going to catch a patient case that I just mismanage in a way that's like either like sort of the clean kill or the... Um, the, just the, I just don't really, I, like it would have been very apparent to most people, but I missed it or something like that. Or, but what I begin to realize is that, that there are, um, there's so much nuance in there and that there's so much importance in just showing up because in that moment you are what that person has and more way 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 more often than not it's better than anything else they have out there whether you happen to be in the pod to which they were assigned or in the rural the only hospital within 50 miles or something or, or farther the reality is is like if you're giving it your best there's really nothing to be um to develop a big complex about after the fact and that if you fail um Number one, it's going to happen. It happens to absolutely everyone. Number two is it's okay to have a few 
few minutes or whatever the period of time you want to save is like as you handle that and process it. But if you don't have a process for processing it and you don't have a process for uh, looking at the self-improvement and potentially even going, boy, sometimes there isn't much I could do differently because these are humans and they are people who are flawed in their own way and, and bad things happen mm-hmm. to people and, and it's not my fault as a means of trying to handle those failures, I think it really contributes to a more sustainable career because even at 10 years, you've built up a number of those scenarios that um, um, you really can't, um, nobody can avoid them. And, and, but you can spend 10 years ruminating on one or three or five cases, or you can move on and, um, and I'm rambling a bit, but just I think you can forgive yourself, number one, like you said, call it for what it was. At that point, you didn't have what you wanted in you. And what can you do to learn from that so that the next time you might have a different outcome if that's what you're looking for? Right. Which feels like when you talk about the fighting analogy or even back to at the beginning of this podcast when we you talked about having a few moments to look at your own event log and just doing the self-audit of how yeah. it went down feels like exactly what you're doing. Yeah, they're just looking for weak points and trying to Im- improve them. Right. Um, um, the other, uh, the other sort of um, fight correlation. Yeah. And this is an interesting one. It does it. It. Uh, it's the only time I I can enter uh, use as a segue into an important medical discussion. A quote by Mike Tyson. <laughs> Perfect. Um, which because <laughs> his his wisdom in general should be no, shared, no shared with the masses um but no he uh he said um he said something one time that i think of often when i see a a code or a trauma or some sort of chaotic situation where you know a learner whether it's one of ours or surgeries or whoever you know they're really smart um right you know that they're very capable and they get in the scenario like the peds code or the bad burn or whatever. Like they know what that is, what to do. Right. But they get in that scenario and they sort of freeze. Right. Can't communicate well, can't get, and they get out of the, the trauma and you, you sort of review it. What went well, what didn't go well. And they know they're right. aware of it. And it's the, the, so the quote by Mike Tyson is that everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and, and because he, I think he was leading up to like what it was one of those 80s bouts that, uh, yeah, Michael Spinks, somebody knocked uh-huh. out in like 30 seconds and had, they had this elaborate game plan to try to beat him. And that's what he, that's what he said. They said, what, what do you think about this game plan to stay on the outside and whatever? And he, he said that everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And I think about that in that code or whatever, like, you know, pals or ACLS, right. or the pr- appropriate burn management. Now, like mom's in the room crying and nurses are amping up yeah. and like you have this affect to deal with yeah, and you can't get the didactic information that you have r- just wrapped around your little finger. You can't get it out. Right. Um, because of that, like you just got punched in the face with this affect and the context around the information that you right. know and you can't execute it because of because of that and um and that some people do that well from the beginning some people need to train it but there's there's pretty good data um on that like resuscitation training and whether it's like military stuff or police stuff or like um emergency care stuff like scenarios like that where you can train your way into being more comfortable right figuratively getting hit in the face with that 
yeah with that room. well honestly i think that is exactly from the fighting analogy is like um getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is mm-hmm. part of a strategy is like what do you do when you feel that you know i i remember a philosophy class literally at like 101 philosophy a long time ago where the professor was talking about you know getting dental work done without any anesthesia for some reason and sort of trying to externalize this pain and you know detach from it and have this sense of hey what is it it's really just a sense of neurons and he's just doing a lot of these different mental activities which i think has been shown by a certain group of people that have trained themselves to go through labor without anything go through severe painful events because they can somehow have built a skill of being comfortable being uncomfortable and not get what i would call the typical responses of sort of the deer headlights and and then you can in that in that discomfort you can figure out ways to sort of mitigate the chaos limit the limit the 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 sort of damage and still stay functional in that and then also the rooms like while that's happening, now you've got like the ear infection, the belly pain, the right. you got other stuff to manage, and so you yeah. need to develop tricks of like how can I how can I maintain as much focus as I can in room two, and still keep these four rooms going and happy ish yeah. or whatever. So getting tricks to like get in and out of rooms in a satisfactory way and that, right. that sort of thing. Um, yeah, man, like, I feel like I have thirty more questions I could ask you on all that, but. Do you do you have any specific like how you've learned to get punched in the face literally at jujitsu or figuratively like the emotional disaster or something like that? Um, how you respond? Well, I mean, or manage the, that. I, so I mean, just this is nitpicky, but we definitely we don't get punched in the face in general in jujitsu. I did Thank some you some years that, of now that i mentioned <laughs> i did some years of kickboxing bef- like in the beginning and i realized i actually didn't like literally getting kicked and hit in the face <laughs> um there's good good life lessons for yeah. <laughs> anybody to learn but um but that i mean that that process has certainly helped me be more comfortable in uncomfortable situ- like physically uncomfortable situations yeah. and trying to like mentally work your way out of where you're at and what you're going to do while you're literally physically uncomfortable um the i think honestly the the sort of embracing that though like you're in your first codes and traumas and whatever it feels like naturally without any intervention experience makes that better yeah i mean that that you take off that competition edge you don't get you don't get a fast heart rate just walking into a tta because like you're so comfortable with the process that um that the the outcome you don't think about the outcome and that doesn't pressure you because you're so comfortable with the process you yeah. can be much more process based rather than outcome based um and and just just getting exposed to it more i think honestly and that will obviously will happen with every trainee as they go through they get more and more exposure to it but also that's an important thing too like when they go in that first scenario where they're getting yelled at by a patient or the code that's difficult or whatever it is that maybe that they feel their affect changing. Yes. Uh, it, recognize it. That's the like, trigger for like me. You, you recognize that you're, um, you're violating my number one gamma pod rule, <laughs> which is don't let your affect be affected by theirs. Like, yeah. and the only way to do that is if you recognize it's happening and then you can be like, wait, what am I, what am I doing here? Like, right. why am I getting jacked up? I Which think that's exactly going to change the scenario at all. Yeah, and I think for me that's 
sometimes that just comes down to taking a breath, even in a few moments. And I've I've sort of made the statement that I don't I sometimes I don't think it lands well in the moment. But you know, if you just like before a big procedure, or even a thoracotomy, like there's always time to just take a big breath <laughs> before you put the knife on and or um you're all set up for your central line and you're like you know i think that helps me just recenter my affect in a way that my heart's slowing down and we can, um, we can do that as attendings too like we can help break people um out of that like oh yeah right right focus or whatever um it's you know well, i think even like a nurse i've seen nurses like turn to like be the calmest one in the room yeah. all of a sudden they turn to you with like when this it, when and you're just up. like wow i probably should be taking a note from their playbook and they're like doctor do you want to do the next round of epi <laughs> do you, yeah that does make sense let's do that <laughs> do you know the story of um of uh the joe montana um uh, the joe montana john candy story uh-uh so he they he was it was one of the 80 super bowls where they were yeah. i think playing the bengals um, the 49ers are playing the Bengals and they're about to, um, he, their 49ers are down. There's a few minutes left or whatever. And he's about to pot- potentially lead them on a game winning drive. Yeah. And he, um, he, he's in the huddle before like kickoff had happened. They're in the huddle, whatever. And he's about to let them know the play that will determine their legacy for all intents and purposes. And he, he looks up at the crowd. I'm sure he knew this, had it planned or whatever. He looks up at the crowd and he goes, Hey, is that John Candy? And just paused or whatever. And I think about that sometimes because they, there's guys that talked about that and they, they were like, it just brought us back to like, all right, this is not the most important thing in the world. All we, like, we can, we, let's just have fun with this. Yeah. And so I'll sometimes do that. Like I'll, um, the person's like nervous about to go in for an interaction and, and I'll try to do the, like, I'm clearly not going to say, Hey, is that John Candy? No. Um, but like pausing on your way into a TTA or something and be like, Hey, if I, if I order toppers, do you, is there anything you, you like or don't like? Right. You okay with whatever? <laughs> and they're like, what, what in the, what in the hell are you talking about? Like, I, we need to talk about how I'm going to run this TTA. I'm like, no, no, no. Are you, you okay with just their like classic pizza? I just don't like fish or fruit. You good with that? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, it's funny that you bring that up because now I have a, a path to which, to bring up and say like maybe even the patient can help like in the middle of a stressful intubation they could just sit up after the <laughs> paralytic has been pushed and say wait i have a question <laughs> can, should we should we elaborate on that well i think the inside joke is i believe uh we were it's not so much an inside joke as it is uh i think probably as a gentleman who might have uh partaken in what i retrospectively would think was like ghb was completely out like pretty much apneic Let's get him RSI'd. I think the sucks was literally like the plunger just hit the bottom and the guy just sat straight up from flat, literally holding a finger in the air saying, wait, I have a question. <laughs> one, I can't remember which one. One of us actually said, no, no you, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> I think it was you and I think he... Um, I, I don't think he was fasciculating while he was sitting up, but... It was impressive. It went from zero to fully alert and then back to zero. Okay, sir. <laughs> Count backwards from 10. So, yeah, I think that one, I, I think I, I appreciate you bringing up just that, you know, it's it's hard because I think an external observer could view what you're doing in that moment as flippant or um, 
when I you talked about the toppers or something like that. But I think it, it as you start to play the game, you realize that those steps are essential to keep your brain on and to keep things firing at the right level. And all the vast amount of training can become instantly inaccessible if you're if you're being flooded with a whole bunch of different neurochemicals because of the emotion. And now all of a sudden you're just ineffective. And yeah. I think that's, I don't want to say it's one of the harder things, but I think it, it can catch you off guard even with a lot of experience and that trigger of watching your own affect change has for me been one of them to where I just need to take a step back or turn around or focus on something else for just even a few seconds helps reset it. Um, Okay, well, without me going further on, I want to um, wrap up because I've taken plenty of your time this morning. Um, do you have any um, particular... We've talked a lot about um, the training or messages you give out, but I, I guess I'm trying to get at um, anything that you'd like to see your colleagues or your um, the people around you do more of as a message to the world at the end of this, since trying to like the emergency share medicine world. Yeah. Let's focus on the emergency medicine world. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, my, the, the, the one thing that I would love everyone to do is what we've, I mean, we sort of got onto that, we sort of got on that and, and, uh, and establish it, which is, is try to try to nail down an, an established decision-making path for the patients that you see, um, especially as it relates to, um, to like focusing on dispositioning early and then having a plan at sign out, um, sign out happens to be when that process is most evident, whether whether or not there's a good decision-making process. Um, and, uh, like I would, there's, there's this classic thing, especially academic places of like never sign out little procedures, like right. don't sign out a pelvic exam, don't sign out a lack repair. Or right, right, right. I would rather you sign out all of that stuff and take the time to present a good decision tree on all your right. pending patients. Cause all that stuff is within our scope of practice, you know, like we can do that stuff, but creating a decision tree about now a patient that we haven't met and we didn't order the stuff in right. the first place. Um, I would rather you do the sure um, do the decision making at the expense of that other stuff if you have to right and um, to make sign out clean as clean as possible yeah well in that's a, in a world where sign out is inevitably dirty <laughs> there's always something in sign out to right that's rough but um, and then um, my other kind of wrap up question I wanted to get into was. Um, uh, we haven't talked at all about being a father. We touched on a little bit about this work. Um, but is this a specialty you would recommend or even being a physician in general to your young kids as they? I would. Yeah. I think, I think, um, I think it's, there's a lot of fun to be had and there's a lot of fulfillment to be had with it for yeah. sure. Um, it's a, you, you have to enjoy the process of getting here. Like if someone doesn't like a little bit of a grind, um, then, then it might not be a good good thing to go through right. all the school and training and whatever. But if you're okay with a, a little bit of a grind or a lot of a grind, um, <laughs> it, there's a lot of fulfillment to be had. My my daughter, she already actually says she wants to be a doctor, right. um, but she thinks it's ridiculous that um, that I'm a people doctor. <laughs> I say, like, what do you want to do? She's like, I want to be a veterinarian. And, <laughs> and I'm like, well, what is that? And she's, she's like, it's a doctor for animals. And I say, you want to be a doctor for... Big animals or small animals? She said, small animals like 
cats and gorillas and giraffes. And I'm like, okay, we got to work on right some scale, scale. issues. <laughs> um, but she, uh, it's. I mean, I I would if if she had legitimate interest in yeah ten years her. or whatever, then I I wouldn't discourage it at all. Yeah. Certainly, I think it's a satisfying thing. She she actually may have a, a sort of a predisposition to emergency care. I came home one day. She had on a stethoscope and what I, like this little toy stuff, and uh, and I immediately I didn't even say hi. I just started limping and said, "Honey, my toe hurts. I need I need help," because um, she loves that. And yeah. she got visibly a little bit stressed and said, "Okay, okay, Daddy, but you're not the next patient." <laughs> and she points she points to this pile. She points to this pile of stuffed animals. Like I got all these. And she she said, "You're not the next patient." I got all these sick guys. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, honey, you are, you are ready for emergency medicine right now. You, you recognized my, my problem. You empathized with me and you told me, dude, you're going to have like a four hour wait. You have toe pain. Oh man. See, you're teaching, you're already winning teaching awards for your <laughs> teaching. I was like, come, come on. This is, this is like a stuffed cat. <laughs> The veterinarian in her. <laughs> She's ready for the emergency uh, vet clinic. <laughs> well, thank you again for spending all this time and uh, talking through this. It was a lot of fun for me, as I think we both anticipated it was going to be fun, and it hit all the marks. So I'm sure others are going to love listening to hearing your wisdoms about this, and um, I certainly am probably going to go push myself to make better decisions before I click sign on. Do you just order. just so that we can finish with yeah. um, my to highlight my my modesty, which most right. most of most interactions with me does. I do you have it's a true. do you have a podcast guest of the year list formulating already? Oh, that's a good question. I um, mean, like in a, some sort of finisher. Like I just I'm wondering who's gonna. Now, be. are you thinking that that's gonna be my own self assessment? Like you know, I'm judging each of them right now. Or do you thinking well, that my audience is I mean, going to be realistic? Let's be, people's choice awards. Let's be honest. I mean, however the assessment is done, I'm just, I'm just wondering who finishes second. Oh, well, that's going to be tough. I mean, and as we've talked about, you know, however you place in this, whether you win or not, I'm sure you're going to look back and try to figure out how you might have improved upon that, especially well, if it's in the truth of Like family. a lot of things, when you start worrying about the process, a lot of times the outcome just takes care of itself. That's true. <laughs> no, um, I, you know, I'm sure that at some point I'm going to have to have, uh, an, a, you know, some type of, you know, either a greatest hits or a... Um, <laughs> Or just a, I'm going to repost something. Some of the fan favorites, I probably, you know, if I'm doing it the right way, I'd be reaching out on Twitter and asking for people to retweet, you know, or maybe putting it on a Facebook page because that's how you're supposed to do these things in the podcast world. So it's probably going to be people's choice. So I can't tell you right now how you rate as much as that might pain for you, be painful for you to hear. Uh, that's that's fair enough. I appreciate the okay. assessment. All right. Well, well, as we come back, I... I think you'll be in the running. I can at least reassure you <laughs> in that regard. All right. Thanks, Sam. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. Please consider subscribing to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Or you can listen on the web at positivelydeviant.audio. There you can also leave a comment, tell your colleagues, or tweet me up. It helps spread the word. 
You can also leave your feedback to make them better, or you can give me your guest suggestions. And here's a standard disclaimer. The thoughts and views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals alone. No one you heard here represents the organizations where they work. Now that you've heard that, let's shut it down. Until next time, thanks again for listening.